Hello, and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's show, we'll discuss the next steps in the Biden administration's relationship with Israel. After the president's big win in Congress with the passage of his infrastructure package, can he now find some time to deal with the issue of the American consulate in Jerusalem? And also, why is a Republican presidential hopeful attacking APAC? We'll discuss all that with Ben Samuels, our correspondent in Washington, D.C. But first... Hello, Judy Maltz, our Jewish world correspondent. Hi, Amir. Great to have you again on the show. Great to be on the show. We saw on Friday some disturbing pictures coming from Jerusalem, from the place that we usually think of as one of the holiest places in the world, the Western Wall. And it seemed to be not exactly a place of peace and love on Friday morning when women of the wall Activists were attacked on site when they came to pray. Why is this making headlines in Israel again? Well, I'm going to be a little cynical in my answer and say that the reason it's making headlines in Israel again is because there were media there. There were reporters, there were photographers, there were television cameras. This happens pretty much every single month when women of the wall which is a multi-denominational feminist prayer group, when they come and hold their service. But in recent years, reporters stopped going. So nobody knew. It's kind of like, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody hears that it happened. If, 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 if women get uh, harassed <laughs> and spat on at the Kotel and there is no photographer, is it actually a news story is what you're saying? That's what I'm saying, because this happens every month. I'm not sure it's as bad every month, but the fact that there were cameras there uh, this past Friday made it worse. And the question was, why did they suddenly come out this Friday? Uh, and the reason they did was that everyone w- was expecting a, a much worse confrontation. And here's the backstory to that. Rabbi Gilad Kariv, who is a reform rabbi, and he is now a member of the Knesset from the Labor Party. Uh, he's also head of the Knesset Law and Constitution Committee. And a recent guest on our podcast a few weeks ago as well. Right, right. And he has been using his parliamentary immunity in recent months to bring women of the wall a Torah scroll so that they can read from the Torah during their monthly prayer service. Uh, uh, Just just, just to to clarify to our listeners who might be shocked at this point why parliamentary immunity is even part of the conversation, why does he, as a member of the Knesset, now an elected official in Israel, why does he have the option to bring a Torah scroll to the, the Western Wall versus just any other citizen who would like to bring a Torah scroll to the women's section of the wall? Because it's illegal. I know that sounds crazy, but according to the rules of conduct at the Western Wall, which are determined by an organization that is called the Western Wall Heritage Foundation and is controlled by the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, it is forbidden for anyone to bring in a Torah scroll 
Torah scrolls are there for anyone who wants them. The only problem is they only give them to men. Mm-hmm. Okay, so women can have access. And he basically says, I'm going to use my ability as a member of Knesset to bring a Torah scroll to the women because otherwise it's impossible for them to get one at the Western Wall. That is correct. So he, he was doing this in recent months. And when the ultra-Orthodox Knesset members heard that he was doing this, they became incensed. And they said, you are not going to do this anymore. And next month, if you dare try and come out there, we are going to physically stop you. So everyone was expecting, oh, no, the ultra-Orthodox Knesset members are going to be there. There's going to be a Labor Party Knesset member. There's going to be a bloodbath. Let's bring all the media in. We've got to prepare for this. But what happened was that Overnight, our president, uh, Bougie Herzog, intervened and asked Gilad Kariv, the reform rabbi Knesset member, please don't go. This will look awful. Please, I promise you, if you, just, if you don't go, I will take it upon myself to make sure we move forward with the, what we all know as the Kotel deal, which is really promoting egalitarian prayer and promoting the rights of women of the wall at this Jewish holy site. And, and Gilad so Kariv respected the request. He respected the request. And after Gilad said, I'm not coming, the ultra-Orthodox Knesset member said, okay, we don't have to come either then. If he's not going to be there, there's nothing for us to do there. So, but I, uh, I'm assuming that a lot of the reporters didn't know this by the time they showed up at six o'clock in the morning and they were all there with their cameras. So they basically caught on camera what pretty much happens every month there when women of the wall come. Well, you had that story for us early uh, morning on uh, Friday, so we knew that the members of Knesset are not going to be there. A- and yet, right. I-, I-, I still want to ask, first of all, do you think that the president's promise here, um, that uh, if Gilad Kariv will, let's say, lower the tensions on that specific Friday, then uh, we could see some progress on re-implementing this Kotel agreement from 2016, Do you think that's a valid promise? And really, what would it actually take for this to happen? So that's, some, that, that's a very good question because I don't really understand what power the president of Israel has in this regard. He cannot decide on his own to uh, revive the Kotel deal. That is a decision that the government has to take. He really has no power. So, you know, it's nice that he's involved and that he said, let's bring everyone around the table and talk about this. But we've talked about it for years. Even before the deal was passed in 2016, it was first discussed in 2012. That was four years of discussion. I mean, how much can you discuss this? There was an agreement. So I really, really don't know what he's planning to do. The thing is this. There is a proposal that has been drafted by Nachman Shai, who is the Minister of Diaspora Affairs, and like Kariv, a member of the Labour Party, to revive the Kotel deal. Now, of course, the cabinet has to decide that it's going to actually put this on its weekly agenda. And that is a decision that has to be taken by the cabinet secretary. So basically, we are waiting for the cabinet secretary to put this on the agenda of one of the upcoming meetings. And what is pretty certain is if it is on the agenda, There is an overwhelming majority, I would say it, it might even be unanimous in this current government to revive this deal. 
And this is an agreement just to, to remind our listeners that at the time was a, approved by a previous government led by one Benjamin Netanyahu before he later reneged on it. That is correct. And, and um, what preceded that agreement was a scene just like we saw this Friday, even worse then, because then we had scenes of women of the wall being handcuffed and arrested at the Western Wall. And this caused huge shockwaves in the Jewish diaspora. How can it be that women who come to prayer are being arrested at the Western Wall? And Netanyahu understood at the time that this looked terrible for Israel. So he asked Natan Sharansky, who at the time was heading the Jewish agency, to come up with some sort of plan to resolve this conflict involving women of the wall. And Sharansky's plan was, well, why don't we move women of the wall to the other side of the Western Wall? The, so- the southern Arch. side of it. Exactly. And there is already a little prayer place there that's used by the conservative and reform movements. And we'll move them there. But the idea is we'll take that little prayer area, which doesn't look very nice and is not very accessible and is not very visible, and will make it much grander so that it is just as dignified and nice as the traditional segregated prayer space. But again, the whole alibi for this was dealing with the problem, what do we do with women of the wall? How can we prevent these monthly clashes at the Western Wall? And then Netanyahu's government approved it. But what happened, and this is really interesting, is that it, di- it didn't move on it. It just approved it and nothing happened. It just and, stood and, and in place we, for, for more than a year. For It was a, a year and a half. But before that year and a half was up, a, a year and a half later, they actually quote unquote, suspended the deal, whatever that means, but basically they canceled it. But after a few months, Bennett, who was at the, now our prime minister, but who at the time served as diaspora affairs minister said, this is ridiculous. We made a decision and nothing is happening. So he went out one day on his own without asking permission from anyone and built this huge kind of plaza, a temporary plaza, but a much, much bigger space on the southern side of the wall to be used by the non-Orthodox movements. And funnily enough, it is that same former diaspora affairs minister who will be heading the government that it seems will be asked within the next few weeks to revive that old deal. Apart from the fact that he's now prime minister, this uh, temporary plaza that he built at the time is still standing there because as we know in Israel, nothing is more permanent than the temporary. That's right. And to make things even more ironic, in recent months, there has been an attempt by some ultra-Orthodox groups, a very organized attempt to take over this egalitarian space because they are very, very afraid of the revival of this Kotel deal. Because for them, recognizing the reform and conservative movements and and, and giving them their own space and, and respect 
at the Western Wall. There, there's nothing that could be more terrible as far as they're concerned. Mm-hmm. So we don't know yet how this uh, a new old drama will end. But what we do know, Judy, is that for the ultra-Orthodox politicians in Israel who are now in the opposition for the first time in almost a decade, this is only one of several reasons for great frustration these days. That's right. As you know, this week, the, the, the government finally, finally passed a budget. First time in three years that Israel has a state budget. That is correct. And as is customary in Israel, when, whenever you pass a budget, it also comes along with lots of different uh, reforms. And one of the key reforms in this year's budget that was just passed is a reform of the whole Kashrut certification system. Basically, the idea is to privatize it, take it out of the hands of the chief rabbinate of Israel, which has basically had a monopoly over it. Not exactly, but I don't want to go into all the details, but has had a lot of control over it. And open Kashrut certification up to competition. This, Now, is a, this is an economic reform, a religious one, and in the eyes of many Israelis, also a step against corruption. Exactly. Although, in practice, Amir, I am not so sure that things are going to change very radically. Because, as you know... Almost in every supermarket in Israel, if you go shopping, you're only going to have kosher food available. Uh, there are certain little supermarkets that, that, that sell non-kosher foods, you, but it's you not have, like you're going uh, to like be... Like Tiv Tam, which is the one big uh, chain that would offer non-kosher food, but, but in most of the supermarkets in Israel, that's not available right now. That's right. So it's not like you're going to be able to go into a supermarket in Israel and buy non-kosher food. That, that's not going to change. Basically, what... What, what's going to happen is we're going to move over to a system that is very similar to what you have in the United States, where there are all sorts of different organizations that give Kashrut uh, certification, with some being stricter than others. And then depending how strict you are, you decide which one you go with. Um, the idea is that hopefully by having more players in the market, It will cost less because they'll be competing. So the price of food will go down. And another thing is maybe also the price of hotels because that's a huge expense for hotels in Israel. The Kashrut certification. Oh, yep. Almost all hotels in Israel are kosher. They pay a lot for Kashrut certification. And if this is open for competition, uh, and I've spoken to some people in the hotel industry, they believe, I mean, it could take a little bit of time that it could be more affordable to go to hotels in Israel as a result of this reform. Now, now Judy, I, I don't keep kosher, but if I did, the, the way you describe this reform doesn't sound like such a huge deal to me, mostly affects consumer prices. Why have the ultra-Orthodox politician been so angry over it? You know, that's what's strange, because the ultra-Orthodox uh, politicians, I assume, don't even buy food with the chief rabbinate cer- certification. They, they have, they have their, their own. own ultra-Orthodox. Yeah. Right. I think it just happens. It, it has to do with the fact that they see the ground under them shaking with this new government. And this is just another thing, you know, this attempt to take power out of the hands of the Orthodox 
establishment is a problem for them. And this is led, this reform, by a minister who is himself a, a religious man, Matan Kahana. Right, but he comes from the um, what we call the Tzionut Adatit, which is more modern orthodox. The, the national religious, yes. Um, That's right. And a former uh, Air Force pilot and uh, officer in the military, so obviously a very different persona and a different political affiliation than the ultra-Orthodox parties. But I've heard accusations coming from them against him that uh, this is a, an, an anti-Jewish reform um, and that it, it's uh, threatening the Jewish character of the country. A bit exaggerated compared to how you just described it to our listeners. Right, right. I would say that's pretty exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Any other big uh, reforms or steps that you see in the horizon that could also create these tensions around religion and state in Israel? Well, yes, there's a big one coming up now. And I think, and again, it's Matan Kahana, who is the Minister of Religious Affairs, who is in charge of this. He is now working on a reform of conversions in Israel, which I think could potentially be even more explosive than the issue of Kutshrut, because we get down to the very, very uh, important question of who is a Jew in this country. In two sentences, what is he proposing there? The question is, um, which converts will allowed to be married in Israel? Today, only converts who have been converted through Orthodox rabbis that are recognized by the chief rabbinate can get married. Mm-hmm. Under his plan, I'm trying to simplify it as much as possible. Under his plan, um, you, if you were converted by Orthodox rabbis, they don't necessarily have to have been approved by the chief rabbinate. They can be municipal rabbis, they can be private rabbinical courts that get together, but the chief rabbinate will no longer have veto power. So it will make it a lot easier for Orthodox converts. I mean, conservative and reform, they still won't be able to get married in Israel. But for Orthodox converts and more liberal Orthodox converts, it will be easier to get married in Israel. We'll keep following that. And Judy, I'm sure you will have great reporting about it for us on Haaretz.com. Thank you so much, Judy Maltz, for joining us on today's episode. My pleasure. Up next, Ben Samuels joining us from D.C. to discuss the Biden administration in Israel. Hello, Ben Samuels, our U.S. correspondent joining us from Washington, D.C. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you on, Ben. We are seeing in recent days some interesting back and forth between Israel and the U.S. over the issue of reopening the American consulate in Jerusalem. Why has it even been closed in the first place? And what's the discussion of recent days all about? So the Trump administration closed the consulate back when they were really starting to cut ties with the Palestinian Authority. And the Biden administration had committed to reopening it when they first took office as part of those general attempts to restart ties with the Palestinians and to kind of try to set a new tone toward the U.S. approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, you know, they committed to this very early on upon taking office. But, you know, for one reason or another, the issue just sort of kept being punted. 
And now we're at the point where, you know, the administration has been in office for about 11 months now, and there's still been zero movement. And Republican opposition and Israeli opposition has grown a lot more emboldened, especially over the past few weeks. Yeah, you had a story for us last week that I think 200 Republicans in the House of Representatives, or maybe even more, uh, signed a letter against this idea of reopening the consulate. And I want to hear what uh, Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid had to say about it just this weekend. About the consulate, it's not about politics and civility. It's an important thing that Israel has opened the consulate in Jerusalem. יש שגרירות אמריקאית, ויש, אם רוצים לפתוח, אגב, ברמאללה קונסוליה, אין לנו בעיה עם זה. So Lapid in this uh, segment we just heard basically says there can be a U.S. consulate in Ramallah where there are the offices uh, of the Palestinian Authority, but not in Jerusalem where it used to be. Ben, what has been the reaction in the U.S. administration to these kinds of statements? So the Republican talking point has largely been around this argument that U.S. law strictly stipulates that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and that any other recognition, whether it's through the presence of a consulate or whatever it may be, would be in violation of U.S. law. So there's nothing in the law that the Republican lawmakers are citing that says that there can't be more than one diplomatic presence, but it is just a very convenient sort of talking point. And there really has been sort of remarkable Republican consolidation around this point. There's been a Senate bill that has 35 co-sponsors. Now I think the signature on the House letter, I think there are only five members of the Republican caucus now that have not signed on. They so probably really just uh, couldn't of... be reached over the phone or something. <laughs> Maybe they were on vacation. So it's just, you know, it's really a remarkable consolidation. And it has turned what was really sort of an easy win for the administration early on into just something that is... borderline nuclear untouchable. But, but Ben, this is an interesting point in itself before we talk about the administration's response, because this consulate before Trump shut it down operated under Republican presidents as well in the past. Yeah, I mean, the consulate is technically older than the state of Israel by almost 50 years. I mean, it opened in the late 1800s. And, you know, I think people really lose sight about how abnormal the Trump administration's policy toward Israel really was. And closing the consulate was a remarkable contravention of every single held norm. And the fact that the Biden administration wants to reopen it and they're facing such roadblocks in reopening it, I think it's really kind of an emergence of something that we knew to be true, but we're still kind of figuring it out in real time about how much the Trump administration really changed the facts on the ground in Israel. And, and I think the consulate dilemma is really the first sort of example that's really emerging about, okay, maybe we can't just go back to the status quo as it existed four or five years ago. Well, while Biden is trying to sort out the issue of the consulate, at least now, after Republican opposition on this front as well, he will have an ambassador to Israel, which will work from the embassy in Jerusalem. Tell us a bit about the man who just was approved by the Senate for this job. So yeah, so Biden uh, announced Tom Nides as his nominee in June, in the immediate aftermath of the Gaza war. And he was under a lot of pressure to appoint someone and, you know, finally did in June. And his confirmation hearing took a few months. And then he faced Republican opposition in terms of getting confirmed. But, you know, none of that really had to do with Nides. Personally, it had to do much more with 
Republican Democratic strategic fighting in terms of State Department confirmations and nominees. So Knight's finally confirmed, has years of experience on Wall Street and on Capitol Hill and in Washington. He's been lauded for his ability to manage and navigate diplomatic and bureaucratic situations. And he's really going to go to Israel to really call balls and strikes and really be sort of a sober arbiter of the situation rather than really pushing any dramatic diplomatic initiatives forward. In general, when we look right now at uh, Biden's plate of uh, achievements and troubles from uh, passing the infrastructure uh, law through Congress to dealing with headaches uh, with Iran and China, it doesn't look like our issue is that much of a priority at the moment. Well, not only is it not that much of a priority, but there's very little room for wins for him. So, I mean, if you were Joe Biden and you... You basically had two operating ideas approaching the Israeli-Palestinian conflict when he came into office. One, do no harm. Two, slowly unwind the things done by the Trump administration. And you can't even get the easy part of that done. I mean, why would you really, why would you stick your neck out and really like stake your foreign policy reputation on, you know, really just looking at it objectively, it's kind of a minor issue on the world stage. Why would you really stick your neck out and like risk your entire presidency, especially with the midterms approaching on something with so little opportunity to present you any diplomatic achievement? And yet you did report for us this week that uh, a very interesting visitor is uh, on his way to Israel. Biden's uh, closest uh, friend in the Senate, uh, Delaware Senator Chris Coons. What brings him over here? And do you think he's going to send any kind of messages from Biden or to Biden from the Israeli officials he will meet. So yeah, Chris Coons, I mean, he's a very important senator in his own right. You know, he's not just sort of coming as the back channel for Biden. You know, he really, he's the chair of the subcommittee for foreign appropriations, which basically gives him the checkbook for all U.S. foreign policy. He controls the money. You know, he controls the money. And he's, you know, very classic APAC Democrat, very pro-Israel, also really has traditionally but the trend of or at least the recent trend of Israel being a partisan issue you know you'll find very few democratic senators that co-sponsor legislation with Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio so that just sort of speaks to the approach that Chris Coons you know really has when he comes to Israel so Israel wants to talk about how they maintain bipartisan relations and in Washington you know Chris Coons is one of the first names that always comes up in terms of important democratic friends. So, you know, he's coming now at this time where there's finally an ambassador, there's finally a budget approved, things can really start to move forward. Things are at a really delicate time, both with the consulate, but also with the Iran deal, and also with Israel classifying the Palestinian NGOs as terror organizations. So it's really, you know, I think there's been a bit of a holding pattern the past few months, and I think we're really starting to emerge from that. So I think Kunz is here at a very, I don't want to say delicate time, but a time where the pieces on the chessboard are about to start moving again. We did get a sense in recent weeks that the administration was perhaps waiting on some decisions that involve Israel, that have to do with Israel, until the government here in Jerusalem manages to pass a state budget and guarantee for itself some level of stability. Do you buy that argument? And if so, what would we see now that the budget is behind us? I think that's a convenient enough argument to kind of push things along. But just like we saw with Lapid and Bennett, you know, vocally opposing the consulate reopening, okay, that buys you three months, let's say. Okay, mm -hmm. now that you're not worried about Netanyahu coming back to power, now that you 
know that the current Israeli government's stable, you know, are you going to push them? Are you going to expect them to just like say, okay, well, we need to wait till February until this potential crisis fades away. You know, at a certain point, you know, the rubber needs to meet the road. And with the consulate specifically, it really is a zero-sum issue. Biden committed to it very early on in his presidency. It's either going to reopen or it's not going to reopen. And you can only sort of tread water for so long. Well, you do have the midterms a year away if you really want to look at it that way. And speaking of that, uh, another very interesting story that you published for us, I think, uh, two weeks ago by now, uh, is about uh, how some retirements that are expected on Capitol Hill could impact the debate, the discussion in Washington regarding Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, tell our listeners a bit about that angle. Sure. So, you know, I think like with much of the debate within the Democratic Party these days, you know, I think there's a very convenient narrative about Democrats in disarray. And especially when it comes to Israel, you know, there's the progressive wing that is, you know, unprecedentedly critical of Israel versus, you know, the pro-Israel APAC Democrats who say the bond is unshakable, unbreakable. If you want Chris Coons versus the squad. <laughs> I would say more like Elaine Laureate said Deutsch versus the squad, but sure. So, you know, one of the retiring members that you mentioned is David Price, who's, you know, really considered a stalwart of the Democratic caucus. He's been in office for decades. He really captures the voice and the message of the Democratic Party in a way that you're really only able to do if you've served in office as long as he has. And he, more than any other lawmaker, I would honestly venture to say, has really embodied this middle ground in terms of the Democratic Party's approach to Israel, where there's a very specifically articulated message that we are in support of the two-state solution. We believe in Israel security. We also believe in Palestinian rights and self-determination, and we're against occupation, and we're against any steps that further entrench the occupation. So he really has led the charge in rejecting this narrative of a party divided. But with his retirement, the Democrats are not only losing a very senior official that can sort of help steer that narrative and craft that message, but it's just one less voice that can really sort of push that idea forward. I want to hear a very interesting quote that he gave you in the interview that you did with him. I mean, there was a point at which, and it wasn't that long ago, 20 years ago, when uh, in the uh, Democratic caucus, uh, and I'll just concentrate on that for, for now, in the Democratic caucus, and that would include the, uh, the leadership of the party, the leadership of the uh, relevant committees. Basically, uh, if APEC said jump, we said how high. It was, uh, it was pretty reflexive. And Ben, uh, if we are already discussing uh, attacks on APAC, there was another interesting one just this weekend, coming this time from the Republican side, Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. So Nikki Haley made her comments at the Republican Jewish Coalition's annual summit. She was saying how APAC should necessarily put bipartisanship ahead of promoting Israel security. And if you are a Democrat who you know, supports the Iran nuclear deal or who is critical of Israel in whatever way, APAC shouldn't necessarily be so accommodating to offer them a home. So, you know, I think a lot of that is sort of political jockeying, you know, based off her audience, based off the people that were throwing the event, so to speak. I mean, it is a Sheldon and Mary Adelson funded organization. And, you know, with 2024 around the corner, it's very... It's where you start the presidential campaign, basically. Exactly. So, you know, whether or not Nikki Haley is going to maintain this sort of surprising 
mode of attack toward APAC, which, you know, she was you know, greeted like a rock star at at previous APAC annual posse meets. We'll see, but, you know, well, first of all, we'll, with a grain of salt. First of all, we'll have to see if APAC is even holding a big uh, conference uh, anytime soon, uh, because I think uh, COVID basically uh, delayed the last one and it's still not clear where this is going. Indeed. Ben, thank you so much for joining us and for all of your great reporting and for people who want to keep following the consulate story and the tensions that could arise around Iran. Search for Ben's articles on Haaretz.com. Thank you for having me. And that's it for our episode today. Thank you very much to our producer Aaron Ehrlich and to you listeners. We'll be back on Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.